together, we want to welcome you to Still Great Bob. If this is your first time joining us, together we are watching AMC's Mad Men trying to answer the question, is it still great, Bob? This week, we're discussing season three, episode three, My Old Kentucky Home, written by Davi Waller and Matthew Weiner and directed by Jennifer Getzinger. This episode originally aired on August 30th, 2009. Hit movies at the box office that week were, at number one was new this week, The Final Destination. I don't know which in the Final Destination series, which number installment that would be. I don't know, four, five? Email us and let us know. Number two at the box office was last week's number one, Inglorious Bastards. And coming in third place was another new movie, Halloween 2, which I believe would be Rob Zombie's Halloween 2. Hmm. Halloween and Final Destination coming out at the end of August. The number one song that week on the Billboard Hot 100 was still I Got a Feeling by the Black Eyed Peas. And friends, let me tell you, I also have a feeling that this song will be the number one for quite a few episodes to come. Well, in this episode, it's May 4th, 1963. Three different parties are occurring, but somehow they're all just work disguised as a party. Yeah, so what did we think about the episode, folks? It was a lot of episode. The parties were work. The episode was work. (laughs) Eh, Watching it was kind of work. Watching it was kind of work, but the stuff I liked in it, I really, really, really loved. So while I, obviously the Roger stuff goes without saying, it's the worst thing that's, it's the worst thing. I was dreading it, yes. Um, seeing Greg makes me see red. Um, but all of this Peggy stuff is so freaking good. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, and I think a lot of it does tend to get overlooked, too, because there's a very obvious focusing point that detracts from everything, as racism often is wont to do. Yeah. Uh, Before we get into that, though, do we want to talk about the kids' party at home? Yes. (laughs) I love Kiernan Shipka in this role. She's so good. I can't believe how good... She is a child acting. <laughs> like, it's pretty wild. <laughs> it's akin to, like, um, I guess Ty Sheridan in the movie Mud with Matthew McConaughey was, like, older than she is. But I remember when I saw that movie, I was, like, really blown away by how good he was as a young person in that movie. Because I don't necessarily think that he's that good of an actor now. So I, when I saw that movie only like a couple years ago, I was like, man, what happened to you, sir? You were like very good at acting as a small child. Um, that's where the comparison stops, though, because I still think Karen and Chipka is very, very, very good at acting. I think she's still pretty solid. I still also think that this was her best work. I mean, she was it's just very so possible. good as Sally. And Sally is such a weird kid, which I love <laughs> about her. Like when. Betty calls her in to zip her up. She's like, I walked backwards all the way from the living room. And you know that she does this crap so often that Betty doesn't even respond to that. <laughs> She's like, I, I hate, whatever. I hate to break it to you, but kids are pretty weird. That's actually kind of normal. <laughs> I guess I just don't spend like a lot of just like normal downtime with children. But like, if all kids are weird, that's great because I love it. 
they're all pretty weird. I just remember my six-year-old niece being like posing in front of thing, being like, is this modeling? Is this modeling? What's this pose? And you're looking at her going, that's not anything anyone should be doing at all. <laughs> yes, that's modeling. All right. All right. Uh, so what happened? She is very sweetly spending time with her grandpa, Jean, um, reading from books that she's definitely too young to fully comprehend. But way to go for building her vocabulary. And then she steals $5. It doesn't go well. If I had to read The Rise and Fall of the Roman Empire with, you know, all of the biases that are inherent to the, the time of, of that tome's writing, I would probably want to steal $5 too. Well, and he had way more. more. So he should have been teaching this girl math so she could have got away. <laughs> he should have been teaching her math. Fair enough. And like, she just... What I'm getting is that Sally just needs more personalized attention because right. she always is doing this. Like she smoked the cigarette, she broke the suitcase, and now she's stealing $5. Like I can't tell if she needs more attention or if she is a little psychopath and she just wants to see what's going to happen <laughs> when she does these things. I mean, she does feel guilty and she does a very good job of of showing it or Karen and Chipka does such a good job of showing that guilt or maybe it's fear of being caught i don't know it's probably fear of being caught let's be i mean are those that different right i was gonna say as a child, <laughs> <I'm> <laughs> same. Um, <laughs> no and i think the the pairing of kind of this this other party or this home home party kind of you know with the the f- missing stolen five dollars um it's interesting in kind of pairing Sally and then Gene Hofstadt, Betty's dad, kind of together as kind of, you know, those those other like the buffer generations. Like you have the Peggy and the Don in the middle. It's their house, and then you have their, their kids, and then and then Betty's. I think I called her Peggy, but Betty's dad, right? And kind of how how Betty and Don are going out and you know having their work event, and the younger generations left there, the older generations left there, and then somehow your employee is trying to have it throw it all together kind of well as as Don and Betty are absent for both Jean and Sally and then Jean and Sally kind of both needing and kind of wanting this certain level of attention and then finding it in each other but like it's you know not I think everything that the other person needs like Sally needs her parents Jean needs something that I'd like a child can't give him and to be kind of taken care of and probably be in a home with with professionals who can take care of him because it's definitely not Carla's job to take care of him either right so mm-hmm. and in many ways it is like just taking care of another child but a bigger one who thinks that he's not a child yeah and it is just a sad fact that this is how we treat the elderly um rightfully so you know he can't completely trust everything he says or he believes because his set his his grip on um fact is steadily loosening i guess you can say um and that's got to be that's that's not got to be it is really frustrating for him because he has his his truth and his reality and everyone is just telling him that one it's not what he says and that he's wrong or two they're just not even gonna bother listening and it's really sad and i mean Sally kind of has that similar grip on reality and truth, too. At some points in the episode, I feel like Grandpa Jean knows. Yeah. That Sally took the $5. Um, But I can't tell for sure. There's, like, lingering looks. 
Why would they not assume that she did it? She does this crap all the time. (laughs) (laughs) I think like the grownups just seemed like they didn't even want to, they didn't have time to even think, bother to think about it. It was very funny when Don, Jean was like, oh, you just think that money solves all the problems. Don was like, no, nope, just this, this one $5 problem. (laughs) Look at that. I'm ready to go. Yeah, I think it was like the moment when he's just like, oh, you're already done looking for my money. And Sally is just like, yeah, yeah, no, I'm going to go do that. And he kind of ling- his look kind of lingers at her. That's where I thought Meh, he probably knows. Yeah. But like at the whole at the end, it was really sweet the way he's just like, hey, you're going to read to me. <laughs> why aren't you reading to me? I just kind of thought this is probably why Betty is so attached to her dad, because this is probably the kind of father he was. Yeah, and it made me really sad when Betty didn't want to talk about Sally's backward walking and wanted to, um, you know, reinforce an idea of thin beauty and then was like don't bother your grandpa I'm like why wouldn't you assume that these two people hanging out together would not be beneficial for both of them like, I don't know. why wouldn't you I don't know it just seemed I mean kind of typical Betty in a way but also I'm like the solution is so easy <laughs> Brightside we finally get to hear some more stuff from Carla yay yeah. It's mostly just her having to handle everyone's shit, though. Uh-huh. And shittiness. I really... But I liked that she was, like, saying things, you know, mm-hmm. back to him on this, like... I never said you took it. Yeah, not, not yet. yet. Well, then when she said, like, we don't all know each other, I'm like, thank you for saying that, because obviously, and also Grandpa Jean... Well, that was one of like the fuzzy things for me because I'm like, at the same time, he also mistook his daughter for his dead wife. <laughs> so yeah. it is possible. I guess sometimes I kind of forget. Yeah. Which because is they really make it easy seem to do. like he can't take care of himself, but we don't actually get to see a lot of, we haven't gotten to see a lot of that since that very first episode. Yeah. And it is that kind of like that kind of like cognitive decline. It is hard to imagine. Mm -hmm. It can be so, um, so insidious and so um, progressive that it is easy to think things are fine until things are horribly not fine. You can't really take care of yourself. You can't remember if you eaten two two hours ago. (laughs) But also can blame Carla for being like, yeah, but I guess Carla's saying that just not just but mostly or it's in it's written that way to say that more to the audience <laughs> mm-hmm. Pro- yeah it is kind of a, like a trope almost to hear that kind of comment but I mean that's because she's heard it and and I think too in that moment it's when Jean like has that forgetfulness or that moment that's that's indicative of, of his cognitive decline and in referring to Carla as Viola and then she's like no Mr. Hofstad it's it's me and then he comes back and then like that is that it's interesting because like it's like is he trying to then cover for his his you know incident of of forgetfulness and that's when his kind of you know his internalized racism comes out and that that exception or like because I think a lot of it with with Gene, it tends to be he's also in a bit of denial about his own his own decline and whether he needs to be 
taken care of. So it's like he's trying to like mm-hmm. cover, mm-hmm. and that's also then why, and everyone thinks he's he's and because it is so complicated. And like he'll have good days or bad days. It's like they're seeing him thinking he's still in the military and you know peeling all those potatoes and then just leaving them. And so like he is so kind of there and then not. And mm-hmm. I think we see that a lot throughout the episode and even with kind of just to circle back to whether he he know when he knew, when he knew what he knew about uh sally taking the money it's like he suspects earlier and like there's that looks but then as people don't believe him that it's stolen as they try to just give him the money to to placate them and they keep looking for it um he knows he's looking for five dollars and he remembers that but i think this is where then again his his internalized racism comes out in that oh carla must have taken it because she's black because I I now no, all I know is my we're looking for my five dollars. Someone took my five dollars, and then maybe the forgets the suspicion of Sally until she like throws it into the kitchen. I was like, oh, what's that? Right. So I think he definitely is present and knows what happened to the five dollars at the end of the episode. Mm-hmm. I might have a have a hint earlier, but I think where he gets so agitated and then you know his his contempt for Carla grows is. All he probably remembers is that he's looking for the $5. And that's when, you know, he's reaching into the racism toolbox, right? Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, even just like in not recognizing that this comment of trying to cover up could come across as racist or like an accusation in the making is also yeah. racist. Oh, totally. Um, But it is it is a good point that you bring up, you know, the covering things up because in many ways, you know, like I said, a lot of it is becoming more childlike and the the it's not a linear progression towards you know losing that grip on on who you are and what you know it's because you you are you have experience and knowledge and uh to be able to cover up for certain things so it's easy to forget um that this person is losing parts of them and it can also be intermittent it's not it can be patchy uh but when like it's a kid trying to cover up for something they don't have the experience they're really dumb sociopaths so when they try to cover up things it's not very good at all like sally throwing the money into the open space and going oh is this your money in the space where no one obviously looked before so dumb so cute (laughs) but i also appreciated um one sally's face as she was like bringing the money to him because she just looks like she's gonna just give it all up in any second and burst into tears but carla the whole time just watching being like this can go very badly Mm -hmm. (laughs) but i know what happened here (laughs) justice for carla yeah yeah so yeah we go over to this like dinner that joan and greg are hosting for greg's it seems like maybe his boss and like one of his colleagues for sure yeah, so what so Greg, as we recall, wants to be is up for chief resident. He wants to be chief resident. What the other younger couple there was my understanding was was maybe a year ahead of him in the, the program and is the current chief resident. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, yeah. And then the, the old the older gentleman who Greg wanted to sit at the head of his table, he's section chief or something. Am he's I the head of the department? Yeah. So it's the head. Of, it's the head of surgery. So then would have say or control over who gets hired into that that chief resident role that Greg wants. So it's 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 definitely I think 
while I don't think anything's written in stone in Greg is campaigning, it definitely has a kind of transitional kind of celebratory tone to it, I think, where there's a assumption that, that Greg is going to be chief resident. Did, did you both pick up on that as yeah, well? Yeah, for sure. I mean, you can definitely tell that, like, Greg is, like, really, uh, like, serious and, like, to the point of, like, being overbearing about making a good impression. Like, he's arguing with Joan about how to set the table, which, whatever. I hate, I hate that this dude's even still in the show. It makes me really <laughs> Um, I just assumed it was still kind of up in the air, and that's why he was so extra, extra. Although, not to say that he isn't also terrible and has anger and control problems to begin with. Uh, I just felt like they were aggravated by the fact that he still wasn't sure. Mm -hmm. And the way they were talking, it didn't seem like, oh, I don't even know what I'm going to do next year uh, You know, when this guy is gone. You know what I mean? And then like, oh, Greg, you're here. Right. Well, you're good too <laughs> well and i think what the, the knife for greg in that in that moment was because the outgoing chief resident like i should have written down the procedure name but i didn't is really good at this one procedure and is getting it's praised for being good at it yeah that's taking one. out part of the lung oh there we go um and i guess it sounded like greg had recently performed a pneumonectomy <laughs> Yeah, and uh, <laughs> the patient the patient died. So uh, I don't know if they or had a bad or was just a bad outcome. It was outcome? just a bad outcome. I think they a bad said. outcome. I always okay. thought that those meant they died. Uh, it could also mean they were just. It could have just been gotten really, really poorly. <laughs> okay, for sure. Um, so like before everybody comes over, they're like talking about this dinner, like the setup, and she wants to do it. You know how they do in Good Housekeeping or whatever. And he's like, I don't want to have a fight right now. And she says, then stop talking. And it is 100% amazing. The greatest. And he does. <laughs> he Amazingly. Does. He like looks a little scared. <laughs> yeah. Well, because I mean, in, in fairness, other than, you know, probably his his chief residence and his senior residence and heads of departments and stuff and attendings, probably doesn't get a chance to be like the man who says how things are then getting pushback. Um, but I, it was just, it seemed like almost she, it felt to me that she was like switching into work mode when she's just like, look, this is a, this is how it might work. And then this is why it'll work. And he's mm -hmm. just like, oh, okay. Uh. Yeah. They make, they make a compromise about, I guess changing like the style of service makes it less casual so it doesn't matter where everyone's sitting which like okay great but I'm like mm -hmm. mad because the way that that scene is like presented in the show it's like oh look how cute this couple is like they're giving each other like small smiles da, da, da. and I'm like no show let's not forget what this man has done like I am mm -hmm. so I'm gonna die mad about this probably because at this point in time even if they deal with, like, the sexual assault, it's not going to be good enough for me because they've let it go for weeks and weeks and weeks. And, like, I don't understand I, why that would have been acceptable to do in a narrative even in 2009. Yeah. Well, to me, I didn't read it that way. I mean, maybe it was kind of project me just projecting, but for me it was just her going into work mode and having to balance all the egos that, like, she does at work and not working, you know, in a partnership 
act you know mm-hmm. the two of them actually come to a compromise it's her coming up with a solution and making it sound like that he's in on it and basically calming down this potential tantrum that's going to happen yeah i'm not saying that as a nurse who works with surgeons uh that this is something that i have seen a lot with these type of people or have had to do for myself but i'm not not saying either either it it felt incredibly familiar mm-hmm. um and that's why it just made me me projecting but uh yeah but i can see where you think it was just like a nice moment where like oh we figured out how to actually be a couple despite our differences and the incredibly shady non-consensual times yeah i just i don't know i just felt like that is what the show was trying to like convince me of a little bit and i was like you know not happy <laughs> yeah. yeah i yeah with how and i mean jones so good at her quote-unquote job as the wife, the host, um, which is what she wants. She wants to impress these other people. She doesn't want their wives who may have their husband's ear to think that she doesn't know how to take care of a home. Um, of course, I'm going with this. But I think uh, the rest of the dinner party shows that they aren't, they, they definitely aren't on the same page and they aren't, you know, this perfect couple that they're trying to appear to be because you have, one, you have Joe, you know, Greg not telling Joan about his horrible fuck up mm-hmm. at work. Um, Either he doesn't want to appear like he makes mistakes in front of her or he just doesn't want to, like, talk about work to her or think she'd be interested or think she should know. Um, mm-hmm. And then when he makes her play the accordion, even though she's just like, oh, no, trying to graciously brush it off. And there's that moment um, when in the middle of her being charming and accomplished and everything a wife should be, she just shoots him the most daggerous, mm-hmm. daggery look ever. And you're like, I fucking hate you right now that's what that look was yeah i ooh, like he's like oh you should play something for us and she's like no and then he just like completely ignores her like show you don't need to remind me that this man does not understand what no means i already know i remember yeah he's not good at that and she just does it because that is her quote unquote job well yeah because what else could she have done like i mean she could have you know been like absolutely not I said no but then it's like awkward and it would be more awkward for her than it would be for him at that point and that's bullshit yeah I think the show is still aware of who Greg is and whether we need the reminder of that or not I think the show hasn't forgotten and that's why like I like my read of that compromise air quotes um scene wasn't necessarily that kind of celebratory kind of tender problem solving moment i think that this scene plays out for them a lot um and i think the show from a more i guess literary analysis whatever meta perspective um is more like concerned about showing us that the ways in which joan is is trapped and having to kind of manage things in in her office life her home life is is exactly the same and i think that's where i am kind of frustrated but at the same time the show is trying then like we can talk 
more about this point later and kind of how effectively it does this and why it does this and how like late 2000s early 2010s this kind of whole thing is but the idea of like this is how it was then didn't it suck or doesn't it suck and so like is that then maybe part of my challenges with kind of how the show is using Joan specifically kind of to this point and it's kind of work is like home home is like work like there's no space for her and there's always the, the lessening of of her um I'm wondering how much of that is that isn't it wasn't it bad back in the day kind of golden not like reverse golden age thinking like you're kind of making the present better by commenting on how bad it was back then which is something that the show really tried to hit us over the head with kind of early in season one so I wonder mm-hmm. how much how much of that kind of um DNA and thought processes is kind of existing in this episode in general. But I digress. Probably the um, the last thing that I, I really have to say about this party is to point out, um, you know, like I've said multiple times already in this episode, Joan is doing her job as a wife really, really well. And repeatedly throughout this episode not just at this party but we see wives playing that role they're certainly not their own people but you have Joan you know calming her husband down or distracting everyone when things are getting you know tense you even even the head of department um his wife also does the same thing too when things are getting tense I think they were talking about um, about Greg's thing and she's just like oh this distracting thing over here laughing it off or the other resident the um, the the one whose wife is pregnant she's just like oh you know it's a funny joke that she's gonna cut the cheese but she's the one who's just like I'm a guest but I'm gonna just serve everyone too um, it was just kind of an exhausting thing to see over and over again mm-hmm Joan already does that enough at work. Come on, guys. Yeah, and one more thing about Joan. She's so cool. When the girl was like, oh, I wish I looked like, you know, whoever. Joan's just like, oh, you could dress like her. Go to wherever and ask for my girl and she'll hook you up. I'm like, Joan, you would have a fashion girl for, like, (laughs) any vibe that someone was going to. Joan would be like, oh, yeah, call this person. (laughs) Someone named Bunny, no less. Also great was um, her moment with Jane, uh, who is so surprised to see her still at the office and keeps making digs about like, um, oh, I had to get my ring refitted because I just keep losing weight or I just keep losing weight. Shut the fuck up. (laughs) (laughs) Or she can't she can't, you know, asking where they live and where they're going to move. Oh, she gets a nosebleed anywhere above 86. You were a secretary six months ago. And not even a very good one. (laughs) I'm sorry, I shouldn't laugh. Like, you got fired. (laughs) (sighs) Jane is trying to be a wife, too, and we'll see you later, but she's not as good at it. Much like her role as a secretary. I guess we definitely will get to it, but, like, comparing Jane and wife... Jane and wife. Comparing... Joan and Jane like as wives just makes me 
sad for both of them. And also, it's like, Jane, you are so young. Like, you haven't even learned that you have to eat when you're drinking yet. Like, you have I no know. business being married. But we'll get to that. And look, Jane, Joan did her a solid two when she's like, Jane's going to bring this cat fight here. Uh, we may as well make sure there are no witnesses. You guys can leave us for a bit. Mm-hmm. I'll join you shortly. I love the way Joan holds her cigarette. Playing with like her ring finger. She's pretty with amazing in general. I just, I don't know. I just love that. <laughs> really turned around on your opinion on Joan from the very beginning. I know. You? I know. <laughs> I She's trying. <laughs> I did not trust Joan at the very beginning. Oh, it is it is hard to because she does fit the sort of like but I mean oversexualized female ideal and we are kind of trained not to trust that. Yeah, and it's kind of by design because you find out that like she doesn't she's working everyone. She doesn't want or need to be close to them. She needs to get her job done so that mm-hmm. people aren't bothering her. <laughs> Which is something we certainly prize in men. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. But I also don't trust men, so. <laughs> that <go>. is, um, <laughs> that's just good sense. <laughs> Sorry, Matt. <laughs> there are some exceptions, but the totally general rule. Fair. Totally fair. Uh, and to the party that Joan was not invited to. Not invited to? Well, I mean, we could, she could have just said, no, I'm having this important dinner with uh, my husband's boss, essentially boss, but it probably was, actually, now that I'm thinking about it, if she planned it that way, it would also give them a safe out to be like, oh, we're not going to invite you to the party, which is great. Save everyone's face. Okay. Quick question. Okay. Does Joan? No. Does Jane know about Roger and Joan? I don't Is think... Roger smart enough to not tell her? Mm, probably not. I don't think it's ever been explicitly stated. If nothing else, she could probably infer it. Mm-hmm. Um, not because she's particularly worldly and knowledgeable and um, great with details. Mm-hmm. Not that it like matters, but it would make sense for Joan just being who she is at the office to have been invited to this party. So I just was curious. Yeah. I think she probably perceives her as a threat of some kind. Well, and they definitely clashed in Jane's previous life as, you know, reporting to um reporting to Joan and you know they they had a had a stash a clash of personalities and styles kind of from when Jane mm-hmm. started working there and her shirt came unbuttoned. Um which is also I mean Joan probably didn't need to say anything. It's complicated. Um but yeah that I think we're definitely supposed to read something in that scene, but I think textually it's just the next logical step of their their rivalry and Jane feeling like she's winning at life because she's married to Roger Sterling. Um, but watching it... Yeah, right? Um, ladies men, men's men, men about town. Um, but, like, watching it as a viewer, like, I think there's that meta element of, like, we know that there's 
there's that element to it. But I, yeah, I don't know if I don't know if Roger would tell Jane. I think he would be smarter to do that than to do that. But maybe he's not. Probably not. It's Roger. Maybe when he was drunk or something. It's the kind of thing he would say thinking he was like when he was drunk, thinking he was being smart, but like drunk smart. <laughs> yeah. And like what I think is kind of nice about Mad Men in some respects is it kind of like it's not necessarily the type of show that would like give us that kind of super salacious sort of like, oh, <gasps> like soap opera, hide campy drama, like mm-hmm. scene like that. But like. It works either way, and it's like, that's definitely something that could have happened, but we're not necessarily going to see it just to, you know, cause the drama, but it's like permeating below the surface there, right? Mm Mm-hmm. So, I don't know who to, because they're not the junior execs anymore, but it's like, okay, so like creative, the creative team, um, Peggy, Paul, and what's his name? Smitty? Smitty. Smitty. Yeah. Um... They have to work the weekend. I really thought it was funny when Smitty asked Cosgrove and Peter, who's corrected this fall through? <laughs> like thinking, oh, we're all going to be working. And the heads of a counter just like, nope, we're not going to be doing that. You're going to be doing that. <laughs> not us, though. Uh, so, yeah, they're, they're working the weekend. Everybody's working for the weekend. Not only that, they're working on a Picardi account and they have to come up with more situations you would drink rum. So it's a rum party on the weekend. Mm-hmm. Their brainstorming was, was fun. Yeah. In that they weren't any good. My personal favorite, though, was uh, Bacardi Eisenhower. <laughs> That's that pretty funny. So dumb. Um, but that was a high one, right? Yeah, that was 100% a high one. <laughs> Along with rum. Have some. <laughs> I mean, you could see that in an advertisement working. You just have to have the right, like, imagery to go along with it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so they're working the weekend. The boys are talking about getting high. Um, after after they send Peggy to go get a blender. Go get a blender. What a fucking douchebag. You go Peggy's get like, it. I'm you eating. go get it. I'm eating. You're eating a fucking orange. It's a handheld fruit. Take it with you. Also, it's really high up on the thing, and Peggy's the shortest one there. Well, actually, second shortest. I don't know about Smitty. Also, Peggy didn't want a fucking blender. You get a blender. It was like that moment in Down With Love when they're like, oh, I don't need a coffee. Thank you. It's like, but if you're getting up to get yourself a coffee, could you pour me one and me and me? I'll have a Senka. Yeah. <laughs> uh. Well, it's interesting too because Paul seems to have his own office now because that's where they end up smoking. Mm-hmm. And like he was all mad last season because Peggy had the you know had the gumption apparently to uh, ask for Freddie Remsen's old office so he gets it. So like I wonder how much Paul whined that Peggy had an office so he should get one too. Probably. A lot. The entire time until he got one because he is the new worst of the junior execs. Yeah. Well, one, I have a small argument that it might be Harry, but... Harry does suck, but... Oh, oh. suck. 
See, the things that Paul was doing in this episode are things that specifically bother me, like, in my real life. (laughs) (laughs) He did get in office and immediately start complaining about Cosgrove being promoted. He's just like, Pete, I get, but not Cosgrove. I'm, I'm, I'm. I'm on the same level as Don't I, I don't seem understand. important? No. <laughs> Obviously not. And then we find out once uh, they call Jeffrey, the, du- the drug dealer, in that actually he was like a scholarship kid from Princeton who came in with like a really thick Jersey accent because he's just like, what is this? Is this an English accent? Yeah. And Kenzie's pissed. That he said that, but he only said that because Kinsey told him that he had no value in this world except for to be a drug dealer. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, really, Kinsey? He's a drug pusher? I'm pretty sure you called him out of the blue, it seems like. But Jeffrey, the drug dealer, okay, I love him. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> he is kind of a layabout who has no job and is uh, so charming. Is probably comes from money. Everybody like, knows definitely a drug dealer like this. They show up. They want to hang out. They're kicking it. He is fully ready to be a member of the creative team so that he can hang out. <laughs> like, he is into it. Um, I did love that he immediately started smoking the drugs that he just sold them and uh-huh, walks over to window uh-huh. and he's just like, have you ever looked at this window? And you know that his, like, immediate next words were like, I mean, like, really look at it. <laughs> I know, I know, I love him. Um, and the way that he's like hitting on Peggy, like not creepy. It's not creepy, but it's relentless. It's so funny. <laughs> so he's finally like, Jesus Christ. It, yeah, it was Give weird. It just, but it also was just like, it's because she's clearly amazing. Man, she cracks me up. I know, she makes me wish I had a job. Oh, just love it. Um, <laughs> he, uh, probably because he does seem fairly harmless mostly because he can't really get up or feel motivated enough to get up to do anything creepy right i just i have to be really motivated to be creepy um i just feel like he has like obviously like when you get in there you get into some like i don't know it's I, you know, you don't want to put, like, moral judgment on people selling drugs, so, like, we're going to pretend, like, there's nothing in that bag other than marijuana, which is fine, um, obviously. But I just feel like he is just very harmless and, like, has never, I'm probably just giving him too much credit, but it just <laughs> feels like he's just, like, never had a truly bad intention because... <laughs> Paul, like, hurts his feelings for real, and he goes, well, you're arrogant, and you can't sing. <laughs> Such a low blow. He, like, found that point, that sense of point so quickly. So and in Jeff's fair, in Jeff's defense, he is a much better singer than he is. He is. <laughs> I just love him. Oh, God. Um, but, and, like, also compared to Paul, who's doing, he just seems like he would be insufferable to get high with like he paul yes he slips into like existential dread territory which is like not a good time sir like come on and he's like gatekeepy about it which is something that men do to women when it comes to like smoking weed that i have like experienced and i feel like a lot of people have but he's like oh well you don't need this because you won't like it and we get like 
she's like, you wouldn't know what I like because you never one time talked to me about any fucking thing, which is amazing because Peggy's amazing. And then later he continues to do this because he's like, if you were feeling it, you would be hungry. Like, dude, you are not the fucking, like, captain of weed smoking. (laughs) Her reaction to both is great, too, because they're like, who is this? They're like, I'm Becky Olsen and I want to smoke some marijuana. I want to smoke some marijuana. I literally was so happy and then after they <laughs> sing i was literally thinking about how like <laughs> i've i feel like i've said this on the podcast that part in train wreck where she's like i'm too high can i leave like i need this conversation to be over and i think that's so funny and so relatable and then when they're doing their whole singing thing and they get done and she just goes i am so high i just hurry her, her that delivery it. is perfection I also love, uh, was it the hungry thing? She also says, I am hungry, but it's not worth moving. And I love, it's not yeah. worth moving for. Yeah. <laughs> Checks out. Checks out. A, n- a nice moment from Jeff, who's just like, that was great. <laughs> and um, so all the boys are like, the reason why they got high in the first place was because they're like, oh, I got to get these creative juices flowing. Mm-hmm. You know what we need. Mm-hmm. And then they're useless. They're useless. They're shouting poetry from the floor. Again, Jeff, and if you get it, you're educated. Think. Mary Jane is my muse. Like, it's fine if it's great if those things are true. Those things are true for a lot of people. It's also fine if those things are not true and you just want to be a lazy person who smokes weed on the couch. Like, all those things are fine and great. You don't have to pretend because then they're like surprised when Peggy's working, which is what they were supposed to be doing in the whole first place. She's in a very good place right now. She's like, you guys get the fuck out. <laughs> I got it. She's so good. And they, um, I think I read somewhere about how they purposely wanted, they didn't want to just like have people being like, whoa, it was so high. Um, mm-hmm. But they just, they wanted, um, they wanted Peggy's confidence to come out. And yes. it's, and it is kind of nice to see her without all her usual hangups and, and mm-hmm. anxiety and, and the, the well-earned chip on her shoulder in the way. And just having her brain working, um, it was nice. Yeah, I love that for her. And I think if she wasn't in that position anyways, I think she would have taken what Olive was doing very poorly or defensively. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It would have been felt much more paternalistic or judgy, but I think she was a. But as we saw, she had a lot of clarity and was able to see what was happening. You know that Olive was giving up her time with her family um, and getting to go home at a reasonable hour on the weekend, as like her trying to protect her um, because she was afraid of what could happen to her because she's probably seen it or lived it herself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so did we know Peggy's original secretary? I think we saw her last episode or episode before that. Apparently her name was Lola. I like don't remember that at all. I don't either. I think I remember her telling someone to be all like, mind your own business. Oh, wait, was it the one that, um, what's his bucket? Weasley English guy was talking to? Oh, baby. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh. Mr. Hooker. Yeah. So apparently she wasn't great and she left some interesting instructions for Olive because she's just like Lola said, you don't like a second cup of coffee because you get edgy. Do you think that's Lola just thinking that Peggy's edgy and trying not to over caffeinate her? 
<laughs> do you think it might be true, but that? I really feel like it was kind of bitchy too. <laughs> oh yeah, because she was the one where she's just like, no one cares about your engagement, and also you keep talking to the English guy when you're get when you're engaged. Mm. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Do we think that there's something to be said about like who they hire to be Peggy's secretary and like what she looks like? Because she's older and so she's not like conventionally attractive the way like when Don needed a new secretary, they got Jane. <laughs> is like the comparison I'm making and I just they're always new thought that that was kind of interesting like mm. I don't know what the point I'm trying to make about that is it's just like not that like young pretty secretaries are like important to have they're not but it's like are you filling the men's desks with young pretty secretaries like for them only and then when it's Peggy you're like oh we'll give like a real qualified person a job like I don't I don't know I don't know the point I'm trying to make, I just. I mean, was Lola was curious. Lola was younger, um, mm-hmm. and Peggy was very, you know, sweet and mousy and demure kind of girl when she started as Don's secretary. I think it's Jane who really kind of who's been the one who's been um, putting people in different positions and trying to find the right people to fit their personality needs. But we haven't really, I guess, seen anyone in kind of more the administrative side of the office that's like that reads younger than Joan like mm-hmm. like Joan is the I guess the office manager whatever her current title is I, I don't recall that is being kind of you know the the big sister figure to the other admins at the company I think this is the first kind of woman who reads older than mm-hmm. than Joan that we've seen so I think that that's more what you're kind of I think getting at Melissa if I'm following you correctly know what I was getting at I was just like kind of surprised to see like an older woman in this position giving what we've seen like so far in the show and then I was like oh well of course you put her at like you didn't put this like older woman at a man's desk like I don't know I don't know what I'm trying to get at yeah yeah no I think I'm I I think that that she'd be less likely to work for others in the office. I think that is a fair read that makes sense based on what we've seen and how we've seen women in the secretarial kind of pull Sterling Cooper be treated and stuff and objectified and stuff. So yeah, no, I, I hear what you're saying and I don't disagree necessarily. Oh, and just to reiterate what Peggy does say at the end um, because I love it in a oh, yeah. way it's almost like too on the nose but there's something about the way Elizabeth Moss delivers it with her you know I'm not scared of any of this but you're scared don't worry about me I'm going to get to do everything you want for me I'm going to be fine Olive and I think a lot of it's just you know I think it says a lot about Peggy but also about whatever Olive has gone through or seen and I kind of love that yeah I really like that moment too because I'm like I love, like, confident, clear Peggy, but Mm -hmm. also it was, I, I mean, we already talked about, like, how she handled this better than she could have, but it was just nice to see her be like, I get what you're doing, but, like, you don't have to. Mm -hmm. It's okay. Like, 
I, I feel like uh, none of the men in the office are worried if the secretaries are like taking on too much for them emotionally. <laughs> yeah. It was probably a nice relief for Olive to be all like, okay, I'm okay with this new generation. We're probably in safe hands. It's like how I feel about uh, what what's this Gen Z? Is it Gen Z, or the one after them? Um, I don't know. The, the the young people. The young people seem pretty good. They do, except for she was very. She acted like they were doing like a satanic ritual. I know what they're doing in there. You don't want to go in there. And like, very funny that you think a sweater is gonna keep the smell of marijuana from permeating this entire office. But okay. Act like you've done this before. But, Melissa, it's mohair. <laughs> I don't even know what mohair is. It's expensive. Oh, wow. Yeah, it's it's Angorn goat wool. I'm like, there's a thread between all the parties. We can get into it more a bit later when we talk about the next party. And I think what the episode is trying to, trying to kind of say or, or, or comment on. But I the kind of class tensions between Jeffrey and Kinsey and Jeffrey just, 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 you know, be being a, a drug dealer had, despite having gone to an Ivy league school and having been out for seven years contrasted with Paul, who was there on a scholarship and just the way that Jeffrey kind of treats Paul. And I don't think this, excuses any of Paul's behavior over the last two and a half seasons or two seasons and a bit because he is the worst or one of the worst. They're all the worst. But where Paul feels like he's can't, he always has to prove himself and he's always comparing himself, whether it's to, to Ken or Peggy and like whatever and like whatever. Like I think that there's that, that element there that like someone like Jeffrey, despite you know, having a different profession than than Paul does can completely undo Paul in Paul's own mind. Like, you know, talking about the tiger tones or whatever it was and just that, like, you don't belong in this world. You're from Jersey. You don't talk like that. I know who you really are. Like, mm-hmm. and, and like the play of kind of who, like, we've talked to Mad Men before about you know, even as, as early as episode two and ladies are about spaces and who can be in, in what space. And those are kind of things that the series continues to, to kind of comment on. And it's kind of a common thread through all three work parties. And we kind of see as the interplay of, of wealth and class amongst the groups attending the party. And then in contrast to like the three parties at the three parties themselves and what they represent and which kind of aspects of work and stuff they represent, which I think is interesting on one level, but I think there are a couple examples I, I don't really like of how they are trying to kind of pull out those, those broader themes across the episode. So did we want to gallop on to the uh, next session as we race to the end? Oh yes. You went there. You did that. I don't know if I'm proud or slightly disgusted. You're neither. Um, yeah. <laughs> you see, listeners, these are all horse references as it's Kentucky Derby Day at Mad Men. May 4th, 1963. Also the day that Nelson Rockefeller did get 
married to his his second wife, having just divorced his first. Nelson Rockefeller being the future American vice president and current governor of New York. Okay. Then, so, in 1963, not now, Andrew Cuomo's the governor of New York now. Rockefeller's ex-wife is the one that has four children, not yeah, his and then, new wife. Yeah, I think she, they had two, I don't, I'd have to, I'd have to look up who had, had what, when. Well, yeah. I was really lost on the context of that whole conversation which, I mean, we'll get to it later, but I was like, I don't know who these people are, so I was hoping that this would happen more, because when Betty was like, she has four children, and I was like, well, so nice, those kids have a stepdad, I don't know why you look appalled. <laughs> <laughs> a stepdad who can support <laughs> like, them. What do you mean? But that makes much more sense that it was the ex-wife that has the kids. So, happy Rockefeller, who married Nelson in this episode, um... Had six children, but I think some of them might have been from a previous her previous marriage. Yeah, so <clears throat> Margarita Large Happy Rockefeller did have four kids when she married Nelson. Nelson had three or four kids as well, and then they had had their other kids together. So it's it's a very blended family scenario. Mm-hmm. Great. So the Derby Party. The Derby Party. Uh, which Betty definitely still wanted to go to because she bought a damn dress. Mm-hmm. And she did look lovely. Even Sally thought so. How fun it must be to have a child purely so someone will zip you up. I know, and then you can reinforce your like body issues. There was a disturbing lack of like derby hats. Maybe I have the wrong expectations, but um, that was sort of disappointing. Um, so, <laughs> lots of people at this thingy. It looks very nice. Um, we get kind of a, I guess, impression of people's dynamics outside of, well, everyone's got their wives, so that kind of, like, adds a whole new mm-hmm. wrench to everything, and we're not used to seeing all of them together like that. Harry and his wife seem kind of on the side, which was interesting. I don't know why I was surprised about that, but also I shouldn't be, probably. Um, Trudy and Betty immediately pair up and run off to explore because they're used to this country club life. And I wonder too if that's part of where Harry and Jennifer kind of are off to the side more because because everyone else has an explicit connection to a certain level of of wealth or privilege in their families or like extended families, right? Um, not Don specifically, but whether it's, it's Betty or Peter or Trudy or to a certain extent, um, Ken and stuff too. And like, we don't know a lot about the Cranes backgrounds in general, a lot about them as people, but I wonder how much of the way they're kind of off to the side has to do with their own kind of comfort in, in that socioeconomic strata. Like if that's new or like where that's all kind of coming from. Hmm. I don't know. It's interesting. It's a it's a theory, anyways. I don't know if it's interesting. <laughs> it's just like what where where do we even really begin to dig in with this whole party? There is so much, and all of it just seems like so inextricably part of each other. It's just a thing. Well, we have a couple, we can almost like, do you want to pick it apart? Kind of like 
I don't want to say incident by incident, but kind of like plot point by plot point. We can talk yeah. a little bit more what's what's yeah, what's going go on in way. each one. Um, so yeah, so let's start. And you're talking about Trudy and, and Betty kind of going to the washroom, and we can dig into kind of Don and the and the the bar scene after. But Trudy and Betty go to the bathroom. Betty's waiting for Trudy outside. And we mentioned the Rockefeller wedding when we kind of started the segment, but but Betty meets one of the guests from the Rockefeller wedding, who we meet then later in at the party when the parties merge. Um, what did we think of that scene? It's it's a scene from Mad Men that has always stuck out in my mind um, since I first saw it. So I'm, I'm curious, I guess, Melissa, if I can put you on the spot, what you thought of the scene where, I think Henry is the, the character's name, um meets meets betty before he officially meets betty and there's the whole touching of the the pregnant belly and and stuff i uh, uh i don't i don't know okay so this scene happens we mentioned briefly the connie and don scene in the bar which we will get to but this scene happens like kind of right after that and before um you said his name's harry before Harry, Henry, I think. Henry, before Henry came back into the episode, I kind of had the feeling that like him and Connie like weren't real. <laughs> like, <laughs> they were just these like fleeting like incidences that happened to like Betty and Don separately, and I like didn't really know why either of them happened, and I still don't really know why either of them happened. Um. It was, like, kind of thrilling and exciting because I do feel like these two people kind of have, like, a connection or, like, some chemistry. Or it's just, like, you know that Betty was, like, probably feeling herself a little bit <laughs> because she's been talking about, like, um, like, you know, how she looks. And we know that that's really important to her. And he just, like, walks right up to her and is, like, I, I wish you were waiting for me. And, like, that is some smooth shit <laughs> it was there was a lot of there was good chemistry there she's and like obviously not available <laughs> in more ways than one heavily pregnant wedding ring he was very smooth and she was going she he's just like i wish you were waiting for me and none of it it did not at any point actually seem creepy either damn it um he asked if she, he very he acknowledged it was a little forward, but he still said he still asked for permission to touch her belly, which like I still see people do nowadays, including other women to pregnant women. And it's just like not your body. Very respectful. Um, yeah. Like, is this guy going to come back more times? I know you're not going to answer that, but it's just like this is. I don't know. I'm, Do you want him to come back? Kind my of. Question. I like like this man a little bit. <laughs> I'm like interested in him. Um, but also, it was a very different vibe than what we've gotten at any point with Don and uh, Betty. Yeah, like we've never seen one time Don like asking her how it feels to be pregnant, and like I'm sure that if he's doing that, it's like you know not notable not on camera you know what I mean like mm -hmm. the stuff that gets edited out when you're watching the real world or whatever um but that was just like really nice to see somebody like paying attention to her in that way like her side of it yeah how does that feel 
What's that like? And I felt like he was asking her like a much more, she said like, oh, I don't think about it. Like it's uncomfortable. I felt that he was asking her more of a like, um, what's the word? Like philosophical question. Yeah. <laughs> it just like seems like that's the type of dude that he is. I don't know. Uh, I don't know. Older gentleman there by himself. Well, he had a date, but older gentleman unmarried, seemingly. Mm. Yeah, and friends with Roger. He's like somewhat important. I mean, okay, so he's yeah, obviously he, uh, at least a little trash. He works in the governor's office, so again, like, but mm. even like when the parties combine and we meet Henry Francis, I think is his last name. We meet Henry for like the second time officially, as we just know him as a guest of this wedding. That's when we find out that it's the Rockefeller wedding, and it's that wedding as well that Connie who is, in fact, Conrad Hilton uh, of the Hilton Hotel chain. I thought we were uh, going to find out that he was someone, like, important somehow. I thought we were going to find yeah. out he was a ghost. <laughs> yeah, I know. An so important ghost. Uh, so that's when he's like, I'm a Republican just like everyone else in this wedding, but I'm from New Mexico, and they look at me like a cowboy. And, like, so, again, here again is this element of he looked like John class Waters and party. Me. <laughs> he does, that actor does like John Waters. Um, there. So when they kind of put over that's the Rockefeller wedding, um, or is it going to, right? So when we meet Henry and the parties combined, there is still kind of, we have our two events at the same night at the country club. And it's still like that, that interplay of like, you know, a, a, a ruling class where you have the wealthy capitalists who do blackface performances mm. with the governor's office, like, meeting meeting together and it's it's very um very true to reality right yeah. we have the interplay of kind of wealth and power and politics and and all of that it's like oh yeah come over to our party for a drink right like i don't know yeah and then you have to, yeah what what did you guys think of the connie interaction i thought don was very cool <laughs> Hopping over the bar when he could have Which just walked is around. Which my new thing that I like. Um, yeah, he like hops over the bar. He's like, you know, there's a hole over there. And like Connie's really fucking cool too. Um, but Don's like, yeah, yeah, I know, but I don't have time. <laughs> <laughs> and he just mixes up the drink that uh, was apparently pretty good. And I did part of me wonder if we were going to find out that Don was also once a bartender. Mm. Mm-hmm. That didn't come up. Uh, I mean, he probably was at some point just trying to make his way because they're two poor dudes who are now on the inside of the mansion. Yep. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I thought this was a little less organic, I guess, than um, was his bucket Henry, the Henry interaction, because we're like, we get it. This guy is probably super duper rich, and I'm probably going to recognize his name when we find out what it is later on. And now they're bonding because they are both poor and everyone isn't. Oh, I know why I get frustrated with this, because it's yet another moment where Don shares something with a stranger about mm-hmm. his past that he could have shared with his wife, and they could have had like a moment to like learn from it and grow closer together, but she couldn't possibly understand. And it's like he never even thought about it. Like, I don't... That was such a Dick Whitman story, actually, that when Connie's like, nice to meet you, Don, I was like, oh, I'm sorry, who did you meet? ah yeah like that was not any don drapers that i know (laughs) Mm -hmm. 
It is weird sometimes the way he disassociates Don and Dick. When he's with Betty, it's just it's just all Don. But once yeah. those people are far away, he is himself. And he doesn't necessarily like that person, but he is more at ease, more open. And it's it's weird. It is a little weird to the point where uh, he should really have someone look at that. He wanted a candy pink stove instead. Sorry, I just looked at Arcani and this guy even real again. <laughs> I started laughing. That is really what the vibe I was getting. And then when he shows up later in the episode, I was like, oh, I guess people can see him. <laughs> like they that just... must mean Connie's real too, or is he? Or is he? I mean, they just seemed like so, so. Um, especially the Don interaction seemed just like so disconnected. But that's yeah because it was Dick, and <laughs> he is disconnected. Yeah, the Connie and Don meeting does feel a bit more contrived than than the Henry and and and. Betty meeting because again you're just outside the bathroom and you're going to see more people than like what are the chances of two people at two different parties going to find a third bar mm-hmm. together to be a lo- like looking for like that that's a bit more contrived but again just and we've talked about this probably ad nauseum but listeners I apologize I'm going to bring it up again but like Madman operating on dream logic a lot and kind of you know the interplay of like conscious and subconscious and things like that um Story time. I had a dream the other night, and all I remember from it that I was watching a golf tournament, and Bernie Sanders was there and got a hole in one. I have no idea what that means. Listeners, email me if you interpret dreams. Um, but like, it almost had that kind of dream logic contrivance to it. But I'm willing to go with it. Wonder if he'll come back. Wonder if we'll, we'll see more Hiltons or or what. Yeah, yeah. I'm more interested in. Henry? Henry, than I am yeah. in Connie, but he is also very a very handsome man. He is a handsome man. Um, sometimes there's there's a way that Trudy talks, and I know a lot of it is just Alison Brie, and it is just her style of talking a lot of the times, anyways. Where it feels like almost cartoonish and fake and put upon. And mm-hmm. for the most part, it works for her because it doesn't it doesn't seem fake. It just seems almost it almost more like a character. And in a lot of ways, it fits the time period. But it gets used to, I think, really. Uh, it it just has it's it's used really well in this because there are moments where she's just like, oh, I'm a carefree country club girl. This is totally normal. And other times where she's playing this part as the good wife and nothing is bothering them and their life is perfect and we're not talking about babies even though everyone freaking has one now mm-hmm. my like Allison Brie I know we felt like we say this like almost every episode but Allison Brie's so good and, like there's this like moment when Jennifer Crane is asking Betty when she's due and they're like making small talk and just there's this like micro expression for like this like couple seconds and on Alison Bree's face, like with her performance, and it just like, and then Pete kind of looks at her, and she looks at him, and they look away, and it's just like, ugh. Yeah. I know it's Pete, and but it's mostly for Trudy, but just like my like heart like shatters in that moment, right? Yeah, I want Trudy to have the things that she wants. Yeah. Um, and it is kind of obnoxious when they just go real hard and extra into their dance oh my god 
I know it is obnoxious, but I'm so jealous. I want to be that person. <laughs> he he. Both of them are just so light on their feet, and their moves are so crisp and clean. And as soon as we showed up at the um at the party in the first place, I had forgotten that this is also that same episode, and I suddenly got real excited because I'm like, "This is the one. This is the one." I had no idea that anything like this could ever happen with Pete because he's so grumpy like remember that one time Peggy was like dance with me and he was like fuck off (laughs) but they I mean well it's because they didn't want to be part of that conversation anymore that everyone was having (laughs) and who can really blame them Uh, look at us everything is fine and wonderful (laughs) and we don't have a care of the world look at us Lindy Hop what is it Lindy Hop Charleston that was more Charleston Lindy Hop is more like there's a six count and then an eight count, but I mean, I mean, more, or maybe it was Lynn. I don't know. More hopping. Francis and I, yeah, Francis and I did swing at one point, but I don't remember. So this whole routine they're doing is like a known dance, or did they practice this, or is it just something the that they style like, is a thing, but this is with choreography. <laughs> oh my god! Yeah. Like, like this is like a dance that they they know like it's not like freestyle maybe a little improvisation but this is routine uh actually funnily enough when i took a taxi from the airport to your place the uber driver was a woman who we had this long conversation she was a um i don't know i want to say a black woman in her 40s and she talked about how she liked to go to line dancing conventions (laughs) it was an amazing conversation i love that for her I was, and she's just she was really encouraging me to try it because she's like, no, you'll see, like it's a really surprisingly diverse group, and you'll meet people of all ages and races and like, have you countries and ever been like, line dancing? Uh would you count a Filipino wedding? Because we love that shit. I mean, yes, but not in terms of diversity. <laughs> no. um, but it's like, mostly Filipinos and someone's incredibly tall white husband with no sense of rhythm. I love that a lot but line dancing in bars really is like that because it's like you get because it's typically country music but not all of the like routines are to country music but you still get like grandmas and grandpas like dance like doing line dances to like rap music it's so great yeah my i'd have like 70 year old titas who are like teaching me how to dougie basically no hold on what's the one no the wobble it's the wobble Ah! yeah I, I actually do want to do that one day when we're allowed to gather and not be considered uh, irresponsible human beings and monsters. There was a bar in, like, the biggest city next to mine growing up. It was, like, 45 minutes away. And I used to mm-hmm. have to lie to my mom of, of a, like, web of elaborate tales so that she wouldn't know where I was or be, like, suspicious about where I was so that I could go with one of my friends and her two older brothers to this bar that let in high... It was, like, a line dancing bar that let in high schoolers (laughs) when I was in high school. And, like, you could still smoke inside at this time. So it was a whole thing. But it was, like, very, very fun. We used to line dance, like, every weekend in high school, and I would tell lies about it. But I got caught one time because my mom was like, there's no possible way that these clothes smell like this if you were doing any other thing but being inside <laughs> of a bar in which people were smoking <laughs> cigarettes in. Ah, oh, moms. Again, know, children are too dumb at hiding things that they're <laughs> doing. Oh, 
Pete did two things that I liked in this episode, which was this dance with Trudy, and also when he leaves that meeting when they're at work, with, like, before all the parties, and he goes, good luck, gentles. <laughs> no. I just thought that was very funny. I mean, that's a little bit of Peggy erasure, but it was still funny. Uh, yeah, it's, it's, I'm afraid this is where things turn for us. I guess before we do that, my question would be, so... Is Don and Betty at the end of the episode, they're off kind of in the wooded areas that the party's winding down um, and they have this kiss, right? And I just was curious what you both thought of the the significance of Don and Betty kissing in that moment after at the end of the episode under the stars at this nice country club. And if what you think it meant to either of them and if it meant the same thing to them and what it said kind of about where they were. Like as a couple in their in their marriage and their relationship right now. Um, I really thought, and this isn't a direct answer to Matt's question, of course, because when has that ever happened for me? Um, no. Um, I thought that they were like dancing. At first, and then I was like, "Oh, they're just kissing," which is really cute for them to kiss because they're not always super affectionate with each other. But I thought that they were like dancing because she was like, "Don likes to dance," but I don't feel like it, and like probably because she didn't want like all of that like attention in her condition because she doesn't like the way she looks. I thought that they were like dancing in this like quiet, you know, whatever. But it wasn't that, which is fine. Um, it feels like maybe in the language of their relationship, like instead of like talking about what just happened with Jane <laughs> being like oh we're gonna have this like sweet romantic kiss and it's gonna be like all good because we are a functional couple now and although we as the viewers know that that's not necessarily true I think it's safe to say that we know that they're like trying at least so it's like okay good for Don for not like overreacting to the fact that Betty was like mad about this and like good for Betty even though I would maybe argue that she kind of deserved to maybe throw a fit like good for her for not like throwing a fit and just being like whatever like it's in the past we already worked out this problem so we don't need to like rehash all of the like small if you've already decided to say together the fact that Jane knew that they had like separated or like broken up or whatever is like inconsequential I guess Mm-hmm. well and it's because too like she would have known because sally called asking when her dad was coming back from the business trip and don didn't tell jane jane figured out because right. like sally called right. like right so it's not even really but like yeah it kind of it definitely i think brings it all up again right what they weren't facing and that's why i'm just curious kind of if and what that kind of kiss or seeming reconciliation meant or you know what that was was all about Annie what do you think it was really hard for me to discern um I'm just cynical in general about all things Don yes. and yeah so it was like it was Betty being beautiful in the moonlight and having her moment where she was just like you said earlier Melissa just kind of feeling herself and and Don loves the romantic version of themselves right uh, so I mostly just sat there going, I, I, how did we get here? I'm not sure. Well, and he was leering at Sally's teacher at the, the, mm-hmm. the maple dance last episode, right? Mm-hmm. So just interesting because the episode last time ended with that. And then to end with this tender 
Don and Betty kiss, which I thought was an interesting contrast. Because, like, what does Don want? What does Dick want? Who is this over here? What What's happening? I... He just turned... Th- things turn so quickly for him and so suddenly. Mm-hmm. It's very hard to find footing in one side or another. Plus, on top of the fact, he just, like... He just had that moment with with Betty and Jane immediately before where he's like, he's going to try to help Jane. And Jane's having a moment where, like, she's recognizing that no one likes her and she's in over her head. And she said all that stuff to Don about, like, don't you just love looking at her, which is actually very romantic and sweet. Um, and then the, um, what do you want to call it? conflict with Roger who immediately sees Don and Jane and seems aggressive in like out of jealousy or something or suspicion even though he has no room to judge I don't know the whole lead up is I'm I I don't have a lot to say that's anything useful actually no what about you Matt yeah I don't know I'm I'm curious to where it goes and where where it goes and like what it means and just like if we can tie it at all to the like almost dreamlike sequences of like where we met Henry the first time. And when we, when we met Conrad Hilton and kind of like, I just keep thinking like these kind of two interactions that to varying degrees feel monumental in the context of like the season. Cause now we're, we're three episodes into Mad Men and we know how they typically structure their seasons narratively and, you know, so on and so forth. So it's like, it felt like those interactions were, potentially something that and will will be built upon as the season continues and Don and Betty were were apart during them. Mm-hmm. But then at the end of the episode they have this coming together. But like it's nighttime and like I just I don't know. We'll we'll see if there's something more there because mm-hmm. I think there might be, but so more it might know. be just more of the beginning of something. Yeah, or are we in like a twilight of something like I don't know or both. Like I don't know. All right. Uh, so um, I guess we finally have to talk about the very cringeworthy elephant in the room. Yeah. In the middle of the day in this uh, country club party, we just Roger paints his face in shoe polish and gets down on one knee and sings a black minstrel song to his lady love, much to her amusement, to the amusement of everyone there, almost everyone there. Yeah, and they admit that this is not the first time they have done this. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, Roger said he does it at home. Um, yeah. And Jane is just like, please this punch. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so I've been dreading this episode mm-hmm. since, like, we're like, hey, let's do a Mad Men podcast. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but, like... So I guess a couple things, like, first off the bat, I, speaking largely for myself, but I think kind of for, just kind of writ large, we are not, I think, content experts on the complexities of minstrelsy and, and, and blackface and, and just kind of in media in, in, in general. So, like, right off the bat, if there's a couple different... Sources that we found that we'll put in the in the show notes for further reading for folks, both in the 
American, but then also the uh, Canadian context as well. And definitely that kind of informs our, our discussion. But I kind of want to just say we are not authorities on blackface in media. That being said, it's of course, (laughs) it's just, we've talked about before how this show uses Roger Sterling in con to kind of make us feel better about other characters, largely Don. And this episode, I maintain all the themes talking about, you know, wealth and class and race and gender the episode would I think still work and be as strong without the gut punch of one of your main characters doing blackface. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like, and that's like the beginning and the end of it. And like you have two non-black writers commenting on this expression of structural inequality and racism in America. Cause again, it's a Kentucky Derby party. So there's all, you know, Paul's in, in, or not Paul, Harry's in Searsucker. So it's, it's very much like Yankees do Southern cosplay, including, you know, all the elements of Jim Crow, but like the audience or the show knows you're going to be aghast at seeing this. It is portraying that some of the characters that we know are aghast at seeing it. I think the two negative reactions that stood out to me is obviously Don and that feeds into, we're supposed to think it feeds into Don and, and Roger going at it at the end of the episode. Mm-hmm. But even Peter Campbell is looking like he's cringing and like, I just, I don't know if it was necessary. And I know when you watch and, and stream the episode now, they've put a, a title card kind of, or like a, content warning i guess about um the blackface in this episode instead of like removing the episode completely but uh i don't know like, even if historically i think a blackface event like someone performing a blackface at an event like that in 1963 totally i believe it's historic and and, and could have is, is realistic it could have happened i just don't know if in 2009 or now like what what value does it serve the story you're telling? Mm-hmm. And and like and we talk about this a lot with um, patriarchy and, and and male supremacy and the Mad Men being very specifically about that kind of oppression. But it just when it does try to tackle race and it doesn't avoid it necessarily, it just it feels to me a white person just very much like white people commenting on race and that's not our lived experience. And that's not to say, I don't think you can't write about it or touch it, but I just think the, the approach Mad Men does is really kind of weak and comes from a very kind of whites. We raise awareness perspective and that's all of our activism. Um, I just talked a lot, so one of you two, please talk. Well, I definitely agree that it doesn't feel like the episode is really saying anything about the thing. They just put Mm. it in there. And they're hoping that the audience is, like, horrified by it, or are they? Because they don't say anything about it, so... Yeah. Um, And that is, for me, 
a um, a major frustration for me in period pieces in general, and certainly repeatedly um, in Mad Men as we've gone on. I mean, on the I was going to say on one hand, no. To one point, it just really drives home the fact that this is a white centric show. It is a very mm-hmm. white show told, but with primarily white storytellers and that it has very little interest in going outside of it every time it does this it's like it's not even commenting it's just going oh here you go it often just feels like we're gonna throw you a bone this is one of the few times you've actually spent even remotely significant time with Carla and it's like cool we're also segregating all the black stories to one episode that's awesome um and I am speaking as a non-black uh woman of color um who has is has been also guilty of not noticing these things not being aware of it or just ignoring it and uh, i don't want to be a part of that anymore and it mm, how do i even want to get into this (laughs) uh it's just very exhausting and annoying and frustrating and stupid because we have shown time and time again, we have some very smart, thoughtful, um, nuanced writers who work on this show. And for some reason, when it comes to race, it's just like, well, here's one thing. We don't really know how to approach mm-hmm. it, but we're just going to slide it in there. This was a thing with Sofia Coppola and that movie with Nicole Kidman and the women and Colin Farrell. Yeah. The Beguiled. Yes, thank you. Where they're like, the original had a black character who was a slave. And for Sofia Coppola's version, they just didn't include her because they're like, oh, it's so complicated to talk about the the whole slave aspect of it mm-hmm. that we just decided not to include it. And you're like, or you could include it and actually address it and talk to other people. Um, it, yeah, yeah. I just agree with you guys. It's like, it's just throwing it in there and going, hey, this is how things used to be. Uh, isn't it wild how racist everyone used to be? And it's like, but they still are. That doesn't it's work when shit It's still painful for a lot of people. Yeah. You're not even having any discussion on it whatsoever. Um, like you mentioned, Matt, you've got Pete who does seem to be put off by it, but then plays along because he knows he's supposed to play that part. You have Don who doesn't find it as amusing and everyone else and um, tries to get out of there. But at the same time, he's generally just mad at Roger. And two, he's not the kind of guy who's going to enjoy his boss singing a love song to his 20-year-old wife that he left his wife for in the first place. So it could also just be he's like, this is tedious and stupid. And yeah, this, this is like a race. personal issue with Roger for Don, not... Race sucks. Racism sucks. Not a race... I don't want to say like a race issue because that's not like what I mean, but the blackface isn't Don's problem with Roger. Mm-hmm. It pro- probably doesn't help. No, no, but yeah, certainly not. It's not. It just kind of feels like we're supposed to think, "Wow, Don is so above all things." Not uh, all these things. Not only is he just like above things like racism. Or to even be mad about it. He's just, it's just, it doesn't mean anything to him. He just walks away. I hate it so much. And now I'm supposed to like just be okay with everyone else who was laughing along. I'm, the only other option is to just ignore that they were a part of this and thought it was fine, mm-hmm. which yeah, it's historically accurate that some people were fine or didn't care or didn't think about it. But 
as a person who watched this in 20 in 2009 and now in 2020 that's not something that is so easy for me to just be like eh you live and you learn well like none of these characters learned anything yeah it would exactly. be one thing to be like you live and you learn if anybody learned anything it, yes in 2020 you will still have people who are like what's the problem with that Frederick Frederick Douglass said that this song was great and helped you know stoke sympathy or like okay but it also was a minstrel song that was used in black minstrel uh, uh, minstrel performances and used harmful stereotypical racist tropes so uh, yeah. complicated <sighs> that's just my whole feeling there just a one big uh. I was kind of thinking about Madman, kind of not just specific to like this episode, but like wider. And I think one of the things that like really isn't still great or like isn't holding up to me and is frustrating me more now through a kind of contemporary lens mm-hmm. relates a lot to Roger. And like we've diagnosed how he functions in the show and in contrast to the other characters. But, like, even at the time, remember, he like, he's kind of in that, like, Barney Stinson from How I Met Your Mother kind of, you know, lovable scamp, like, character. And, like, that's how he's kind of, like, coded. And it's like, oh, he's trash, but we love him anyway because he's witty. And, like, you know, oh, Roger, ha, 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 ha. And, like, I don't know if I have bandwidth for that anymore Mm -hmm. and we probably i both i individually and like generally as a media consuming society like probably shouldn't have had the kind of bandwidth and like been as charmed and entertained by roger at times as we necessarily were back then Mm -hmm. um and i think that that's like kind of a critique of kind of the whole show where it's like it's commenting on these things but it's not really like always doing the stuff with like you know gender inequality or, or racial inequality mm-hmm. like it just like like the show used to I my recollection of the show is like about the damages of of patriarchy largely on on women and like that's still there in the show and it I think that it does stuff with that a lot but it kind of just I don't know it just kind of like just lets let some of it sit mm-hmm. and like, yeah, that's, that's re- yeah. Re- reality. But like, C'est la vie. I don't know. Yeah. It's just, it, and it's, it's like an attempt at intersectionalism and um, wanting credit for not doing real work. It's like having, it's like remaking Suspiria with a cast that is primarily all women, all women in the leads talking about how you've centered in the female perspective and it's written by a man, directed by a man, and then scored by a man. Yeah. Not, like, obviously not to say that you have to be from that perspective to talk about it, but... No, but... Um, but, because I'm currently watching Lovecraft Lovecraft County Country, which is uh, based on a book written by a white man. Um, and it, I think it deals with things better than some things. Um, but there is it's pretty clear that these gestures in the show are 
not as sincere or as well thought out or genuine or deep as they deserve to be. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I don't think any of us are saying that they shouldn't have talked about race in the show, but like really talk about it if you're going to do something like this. I just don't Mm -hmm. think that like this doesn't feel like a conversation. This is just like, oh, look at the thing. And then Mm -hmm. it's we're having the conversation, but 11 years later and with very little context given to us from the show itself. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, we can't even talk about the other characters in connection to this because there isn't any. Somehow we can spend seven seasons talking about Don and Dick Draper. Don, those guys, that guy. Yes, yes, yes. In excruciating nuance. (laughs) But not this. Um, Can I just no, should we go read ahead. what the title should we read what the title card was? Oh, yeah, or yeah, is yeah, that yeah. Uh, yes. Before um, the episode? Just yeah. So to anyone who wasn't aware, you know, in the past year, especially um, with the uh, more mainstream acceptance of Black Lives Matter uh, into, I guess, the mindset of everyone's, um, we had a lot of shows that had uh, very um, racist content whether they're portraying something that was quote unquote realistic or whatever some shows have taken their episodes out sometimes you had like community taking out an episode where uh one of the character one one the characters was dressed as a dark elf um and there was a joke about how like other characters were mistaking it for blackface and even that episode was taken down um lionsgate made the choice not to take not to remove this episode from the Mad Men Library or to remove this scene. Um, and does anyone want to read the statement? This was the title card uh, on wherever Mad Men is streaming. Yeah, so their statement reads, this episode contains disturbing images related to race in America. One of the characters is shown in blackface as part of an episode that shows how commonplace racism was in America in 1963 in its reliance on historical authenticity the series producers are committed to exposing the injustices and inequities within our society that continue to this day so we can examine even the most painful parts of our history in order to reflect on who we are today and who we want to become we are therefore presenting the original episode in its entirety what do you guys think of this choice I think it's a little maybe overreaching to say um, how committed they are to exposing injustices and inequities. Like, it doesn't always feel like they're saying, like, look at this and it's awful. They're just saying, like, look at this, it's life in some instances. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like, my, my opinion is, like, I, I think leaving it as part of the catalog and like i think that makes i think that's a better choice than like removing like the community episode like as an example and like i think that like while i don't necessarily agree with the statements assertions of the aims of the show entirely we've been discussing about it's i mean it's very um 
it's I can imagine it being crafted in a Sterling Cooper like boardroom somewhere when they decided when Lionsgate decided what they were going to do with it and have a title card and stuff. But I mean, yeah, I I challenge the wording and like some of the assertions of the title card. I do think that like leaving the episode as part of the the catalog still makes sense. I think most of my criticisms are directed at the production and kind of inception standpoint Mm -hmm. of the episode and not Mm -hmm. necessarily the decision to not censor it. Um, Even though I think you could probably have edited around, around it and the episode still probably would have worked exactly the same. So that's where I, I questioned the, the necessity of the, like it was for shock value, Mm -hmm. right? Like, like that's ultimately what it was. And they, my, my read or, or senses is that they, in, in Matthew Weiner and, and Dabney Waller, who Dabney Waller, this is her first, I believe her first credit on, on Mad Men, who is a, a great, great screenwriter, screenwriter and future showrunner of this year's Mrs. America, um, which is definitely kind of, I think, in a similar milieu to um, Mad Men in some ways. But, uh, they were thought they were probably like it's like when you write a paragraph and then like have an exclamation point like in an academic paper where you're like you know that it's not proper academic language but it really fits mm-hmm. and you can drive your point home and it's like this is your exclamation point and like your thesis for the episode that feels like what what it was narratively and I don't know if we needed to dial it up to mm-hmm. that I guess is what what my opinion is what it comes down to it. And yeah. Yeah. I mean, the whole thing, it's just, it's literally just an excuse to get Don to leave the rest of the party. So I know. Why don't we just did it like this? Which like Don dips out on yeah. parties all the fucking time. So I don't know why. Yeah. And I mean, I appreciate that they recognize that like, you can't just erase a thing because then you erase the conversation around it. But it's, it's it's almost they're giving themselves too credit too they're much acting credit like they did a yeah, lot more with this. they're acting like they did so much with this that it needs to say because it's so important and like that is just not the case at all yeah yeah it's not like you know when you know putting huckleberry finn on the band books list because the n-word comes up so much because no one actually wants to talk about the uh the casual usage of it and what it meant at the mm-hmm. time and what it means now it's just no, we just threw this in here, and uh, yeah, that's it. Have you two heard of the blog from like? It's from around this time. It would have been like two thousand and eight, two thousand nine, right? And this episode would have been being written and coming out. The blog stuff white people like. I have. I have like heard of that, but not. So it's a blog again from from the mid or late oddies that. Quote, takes a satirical aim at the interests of North America's left-leaning city-dwelling white people. Um, started by two Canadians who lived together. One of them was white, but the other was his uh, his Filipino-Canadian roommate, Miles, Miles Valentin. And um, the white roommate was watching The Wire, HBO's The Wire. And <clears throat> Miles was like, oh, that's that's a white people show. And that they started talking and this this blog came from it. Um, and I'll, I'll link it in the one I'm referencing in the show notes as well, but stuff white people like number 18, 
raising awareness. An interesting fact about white people is that they firmly believe that all of the world's problems can be solved through awareness, meaning the process of making other people aware of problems and then magically someone someone else, like maybe the government, will fix it. Mm. And it, it, mm. it goes on, but that that feels very much like Madman's kind of perspective, specifically when it, it comes to race. And like later in the blog, it's like, popular things to be aware of. Quote, the environment, diseases like cancer, AIDS... Uh. Poverty, homophobia, drug rehab, prisons, like like, and again, this is two thousand eight, so it's coming from that kind of like perspective. Uh-huh. But that's that's what reading that title card um, yeah. reminded me of <laughs> is that blog post from two thousand and eight. So, yeah, yeah. So yeah, how, amazing how this one scene that actually is so inconsequential to the story in the episode to the story overall to any of the characters still manages to occupy so much of the conversation uh mainly in its half-assedness and it's, it's just really frustrating because like there was a lot of stuff that i liked in this episode uh-huh. that i'd forgotten because it's not one i'd like to revisit yeah right yes so very much so yeah i think i think overall it was a better episode than i remembered or had better things in it but it's not i don't like it because of everything we just talked about yeah uh, peggy olsen and i to... want to smoke some marijuana deserves a better episode yeah yeah it really does period end of sentence <laughs> after all that some bops uh yeah uh if we still have any left I just wanted to point out that I really like that poor actress at the very beginning of the episode that Harry was gross to. Uh, she was listing all these like important roles that, or important mm-hmm. productions that she was in. She was the nurse in Romeo and Juliet. She did some part in M- Moliere. <laughs> I really like that she hesitated when she said it because she was trying to be really like, I'm a very serious actress for a soda commercial. Um but she didn't feel confident saying that name. Uh, and then Harry just wanted to see her do the twist. Oh, he was real big trash in that scene. Yeah. Like, I'm sorry for his wife, but I'm glad that he went to this party and felt awkward all night. He deserved that. And he was so petty about it, too. And he's she just like, no, I'm not going to stay and work but... because uh, I'm not part of the team. Well, you're not part of the team, you weirdo. <laughs> Head of the television department. Um, no, it definitely seems like the show has decided that we need a certain balance of like gross Lotharios to like nice nice guys in that group that we feel conflicted of. And like as we start liking Ken better, it's like they make Harry a little bit grosser because like early in season one, Harry was the one of that group that we liked, right? <laughs> yeah. So. Oh, I have a bit. Um People love to forget that they've met Ken Cosgrove. <laughs> <laughs> he like introduces himself to Betty and he's like, we met. And like that wa- was it actually Jane who also forgot about him? It was Betty, wasn't it? Well, it was Betty in this episode, but like the other time that happened, he's like, oh, yeah. Ken Cosgrove. Account. As, as like, much why as do people I love, not remember me? As much as I love Ken <laughs> and as much of an impression he's made on me, he does look like a million other white guys. He I met. does. All right. I think we have said enough. You probably have a lot of stalling <laughs> to cut out at the end of this. Oh, yeah. That's okay. 
any damn way. <laughs> so we have more show to look forward to. All right. Um. So until next time, Matt, where can people find you on the internet? You can find me on Twitter at Mattyhue, M-A-T-T-Y-H-U-G-H. And Melissa? You can find me on Twitter at Mellow Yellow, which is M-E-L-L-O-O Yellow. Or you can find me as the co-host of the Wild Pretty Things podcast. Our most recent episode is about Josie and the Pussycats and Gem and the Holograms. Mm. Nice. Uh, and you can find me on Instagram and Twitter, neither of which I really update, at Pop Artery. Uh, you can also find me on the Daily Nightly, uh, my Jane Austen podcast, which is nearing the end of Pride Prejudice. Yay! Yeah, it's very exciting. Yeah, if you want to reach us at the show, you can email us at stillgreatbob at gmail.com. You can find us on Twitter at StillGreatPod. And if you really love us, you can rate and review us on the podcasting system of your choice. Oh, and as always, thanks to uh, DJ Empirical for our very groovy theme song. Bye. Bye. Here it is. We're stalling. We really are. <laughs> <laughs> well, did we want to just rip that bandaid off then? <laughs>